Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You are listening to The Grief Gang Podcast, hosted by Amber Jeffrey. The podcast dedicated to having difficult and layered conversations on grief and loss. Through my own personal reflections on grief, inspirational guest appearances and contributions from the incredible community, you will find an array of real, authentic, moving and at most times humorous accounts of what it's really like to live with grief. It's not always doom and gloom, I promise you that. We know how to have fun whilst talking about the heavy stuff around here. So, welcome to the gang, the one you never asked to be a part of. So much for being here today on the Grief Gang podcast. It's been long, long overdue and I'm just elated to have you here. How are you? I'm absolutely over the moon to be here. This is so good. It's so nice to see your face. I know. It's so nice to see all of you, but yeah. um, you're an icon. I'm oh. just over the moon. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I take that title of icon very seriously. <laughs> it is It is a title that requires a certain level of, you know... Oh, of, iconism. I mean, I, I, think you had it, I think you had it before the Oxford event, for sure. <laughs> um, but know. obviously, I'm so pleased that so many more sensible people are actually going oh this this amber's pretty flipping good at what she does and also an amazing human being oh Let's i just pay feel her exactly and, and bring the same. Talk to more people <laughs> i feel the exact same and i just feel like that night when we met at pippa's event was just it was meant to be and it was just you were there in the front row and just we all got to chatting afterwards and i'm just so so grateful for the way the universe works and puts us all in each other's path and just knowing each other's amazing work and getting to know each other and being able to amplify each other and that's why I'm just really looking forward to this conversation we're going to have today and talking about your work and the changes that you're making the iconic work that you're doing <laughs> it never feels like it when it's something you're doing mm. does it and actually when you when you were saying about Pippa's event I never ever went to in, infertility mm-hmm. 
I never went to infertility events. I never went to childless events. I went to, I did go to the uh, Gateway Women's Excellent Reignite weekend, mm. but that was like a, a few years into the whole experience because yeah. I don't know. I just, I didn't necessarily want to be around people mm-hmm. going through the same thing. Isn't yeah. that awful? No, it's not I just at sort all. Of retreated totally, and I think it's it, that's that's really quite actually quite apt for just grief in general. And I think for people who um, even engage with my work, sometimes you know, getting involved with these communities, workshops, events, whatever it is, as much as it feels in the moment like the right thing, it can be really overwhelming because you are absorbing other people's pain. As much as eventually that will become. A, a, a useful tool for you sometimes it's like I've only got enough room in me in for my pain <laughs> that's it and something that I found incredibly useful when I was listening to every podcast under the sun that I could find about all aspects of grief yeah. was um uh, David Kessler who runs mm-hmm. grief.com um and he said that the the worst the worst pain is the, the worst grief is the one that you're experiencing at the moment of course but regardless of that, I think comparison has always been like a major factor in, in my self-isolation around mm. all aspects of infertility, grief, the way that I have dealt with various aftermaths from it. Because yeah. I don't know, part of the reason that I wanted to do this book was because every time I looked around at anything to do with infertility, IVF, anything, it just sort of felt as though every story just ended with somebody having a baby and then there were no more problems ever afterwards and everybody was fine forever Mm -hmm. and part of the joy of really getting under the bonnet of it all and as you know all too well through your grief work and also through the podcast and everything is that there's no and then we were happy ever after there's just life before life during and life afterwards and I think one of the things that is so useful and brilliant and has been for me with podcasts is hearing how the hell other people, whatever their experience, whatever their story, uh, whether it's to do with infertility or, or anything else, uh, you know, how the hell they've sort of got through it? How how do you put one foot in front of the other? How do you take off your pyjamas and put on some slightly cleaner pyjamas, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. You're so right in what you were saying about how, especially in the case of, of with infertility, that like you, I, I haven't experienced this, but often read of how we've gone through this journey but we've got we've got up the mountain and we you know we went through all the trenches of it and we still you know but we had at the end at the end there was a pregnancy at the end there was a child and so for you there's so much about that and sort of that isolating experience that I do want to talk with you about because it's and as what's inspired you to go on to write your book of yeah not everyone does go through the rigorous hell of IVF and many rounds of it and end up with the child or the pregnancy and I have the story to tell about it. Yeah, but I think one of the key things for me was that I I only wanted my story to be one of them mm-hmm. because one of the things one of the things that I've really found through not just editing the essays or finding contributors or hearing from other people's stories because we did a round of public mm-hmm. submissions later on which was fantastic. Yeah. But there is so much grief and so much such feeling that is just society just whitewashes it's called um disenfranchised grief a grief that is not recognized by society and a really key one of those i think is the grief of parents not just for you know their life pre-children and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing as we hear quite a lot about on mummy blogs but but also when you've lost children before your living children or perhaps during Mm -hmm. or or the ways that you've brought about um becoming a parent Mm -hmm. like it's that thing isn't it even if you have a child and you only in inverted commas have one child 
then there's something about that that makes people feel really wobbly Mm. um, in the same wobbly way that they can feel about encountering somebody who doesn't want to have children Mm. or who doesn't have children or, you know, just does something else that they feel like, oh, is that going to make me look at my life in a different way? Yes. And again, that's a massive one with anything to do with grief because, you know, nobody wants to experience that. But it is, you know, along with love, hopefully, along with friendship, one of the things in life that we are absolutely guaranteed to encounter. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we're going ahead, but here, but Kat, can you tell the listener a little bit about who you are? And and we're talking about the book, obviously, we know the book, and I've been following your journey with it throughout the whole process. And just so exciting. And and probably by the time this episode comes out, the book will be on its way to to being published and out there. Finally, yay! (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so who are you, Kat? And what do you do? And what is your relationship to grief? How are you somehow here today on the Grief Gang podcast? I think the key thing first is that I am nobody. I am just literally some random person. I'm a fairly lower to mid-market freelance journalist. Uh, I most of the time write about arts, so I write about the archers a lot. Uh, you know what, I wanted four, to so. talk to you about this because <laughs> I, Kat... I grew up on the arches. I mean, I couldn't tell you, you know, much about, but all I know is that my Sundays consisted of driving in the car with my dad and hearing... Yeah. That's 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 how entire generations of listeners are indoctrinated. I don't think anybody chooses to listen to the archers. I think it just seeps into your mind until, you know, you're part of the giant brain organism that is the enormous archers listenership. Yeah. But yeah, no, normally I write about cheerful radio, TV, film things. And then, you know, being a freelance writer, I now have a lot in my Swiss army knife of, of stuff. I do loads of copywriting, mostly because fees for journalism god bless it have not changed since apparently the 1840s and i think it was reasonably well paid then but not now and um so loads of copywriting i do um lots of social media stuff consultation um content creation uh really interesting stuff on films and tv as well um and then i'm the rest of the time certainly recently i've just been a very poor book writer incredibly grateful for the fact that my husband has a stable enough job and also doesn't mind me doing this so that he can cover most of the bills yeah. for particularly the latter stages yes. when I'm just like I've I've got nothing yeah. I've just got to edit this book there's for nothing which I'm currently receiving the single button exactly <laughs> can we play the bills with them oh we can't we can't that's still not a thing Fuck. no we still can't get away with yeah. that no but yeah sorry the monologuing but so I how I ended up 
working on this book, which is, it's an anthology. It's got 22 people's, I don't know what to call them. They're not, I suppose we call them essays now, but it's not really an essay, but it's not a story either because story suggests that it's fictional. So at some point I probably should figure out what the hell to call them. But yeah, so <laughs> what's got going on the blurb? Story essays. <laughs> yeah, totally. Story essays of um, people's experiences around all areas mm. of not having children, basically. Um, so one of my favourite genuine essays is actually somebody who's got no skin in the game at all in terms of personal experience, but is fascinated by the historical depiction of childless women. Mm. Um, and so Emma Duval does this brilliant Instagram sharing um, the stories of child-free and childless women mm-hmm. throughout history and and the depiction thereof. So that's a really interesting way of anchoring it. Mm. And thinking of like the pure childless women experience, the absolute godmother is Jodie Day, mm. whose incredible book, um, the Li- uh, Living the Life Unexpected, mm. I have on my shelf and refer to it constantly. Um, but she was like the first, well, one of the first like real spokespeople if you like for just being somebody that didn't have kids and that was about sort of 11 12 years ago and it's crackers to think that you would need a spokesperson but whereas now you know people are sort of speaking more about it um but but the reason why this book came about at all and it's come about through the crowdfunding publisher unbound is partly because as anybody knows who's who's gone through any kind of infertility Uh, or you know losing a child as well losing the potential of becoming a parent it's it's not something that people are like wow that's a sexy subject that'll (laughs) really sell in smiths my god do you know what yeah people going on their holiday god they're gonna (laughs) buy a hundred billion copies of that um whereas unbound is very much you know incredible picture book people hopefully support it and then it's made and it goes into the shops like a proper book you don't and it was really key for me I, i didn't want to self-published this book particularly mm. because it felt a little bit adjacent to having to you know send off a stamped addressed anonymous mm. you know a4 brown envelope in the post and yeah. then getting your sad little book back <laughs> for your sad little self yeah. I was just like no it is fucking sad but yeah. people have lived with this experience for years yes. and it deserves to be in the freaking waterstones yeah. so um, my husband and I um tried to conceive for about six years which my god is the most boring thing in the world yeah. like Having sex is great. Trying to conceive. Yeah. Oh, good God. It's so not fun. Just so not fun. Particularly when you realise everything that they taught you in schools is wrong, incorrect. And also if they taught you anything, you were lucky. And that there's sort of about like four whispers a month (laughs) when you could possibly get pregnant. But yeah, nightmare. So, and then we we ended up having two cycles of IVF, Mm. both of which sadly failed due to something that I literally just never encountered at all, which is that my eggs just didn't mature enough to fertilize. I was like, what? Um, And consultants of varying degrees of should should or should not be put in front of human beings um, were like, yeah, this is really weird. Don't know what to tell you. Um, And we had another consultation the next year with another hospital in which we were basically told in no uncertain terms, well, you could try once, but this really isn't, it's probably, it's just not a thing for you. Because we Mm. were literally preparing to get a loan for like 14 grand and do what, it's not called all you can eat IVF. Yeah, Yeah, you wrote something, you were like, we've got to do a buffet. Keep going, keep going, keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Turn up to a buffet and instead of anything fun happening, it's just like, oh God, this again. Um, and we were so lucky to sort of go through it, but then also, fuck me, it really sucked when it didn't work because 
like, again, I just didn't know that that was a possibility, like, at all. Did you think it was, I mean, again, with all IVF um, and things and treatments like this, of, you know, there is no guarantee, but... And you wrote a part where I, I love to, and I could almost see myself when you were like within where your mind and with your ADHD mind of just kind of just, you know, being determined, like, no. And so if I throw enough money at it, if I put myself and my body through enough, there has to be a positive outcome at the end of this, or there has to be something for all of this pain and for all of this endurance. And I, when I was reading it, I was just like, God, I could, I, they're not experiencing it, could just so imagine I would, yeah, be exactly the same. I think it's key as well that I really thought that I could do something Mm -hmm. about it because even though my husband and I both had tests and they both all of the tests came back with zero problems whatsoever Mm -hmm. so this really does come under unexplained infertility I saw it as being my problem Mm -hmm. that I need to get this done um you know my husband will whoops you know go and jizz in a cup the poor chaps um (laughs) and and I'll just do everything that I can to sort of make this happen and then because I think partly because growing up, um, I always felt like I was a disappointment. Mm. And the word that a therapist used when I eventually went to see a good one, which was about 10 years ago when I was, God, I was nearly 30. Mm. Um, he said, it sounds as though you think you're defective. And as I'm now finding through writing another book about mm. adult ADHD diagnosis, that sort of feeling is really common mm. when you have always felt that there is something underlyingly wrong mm-hmm. with you but at, at the time like this was all happening before I knew that I had ADHD and so had that little explanation and so it was just like right I just need to go at it because obviously I'm doing something wrong and um we'll just sort of keep going at it until we find a solution but at the same time in the back of my head part of me was like you know you're not doing anything wrong because as we know every single day women become pregnant through forced rape through yeah coercive relationships through you know all this stuff happening whether it's in war zones or really sadly just at home yeah and so if it's not going to happen for me I very much doubt that my not very stressful zone three London bougie middle class life is stressful enough to really be having the kind of effects on my reproductive system that some people might suggest yeah yeah it's um there's so many bits that you wrote that I want to come back and this this particular part that I was reading and just I think we we touched on earlier about you know sort of like miscarriage and the death of a child but and what you were writing and and what was so important about you writing this part was because there are there are more stories and I guess more openness with when when something has died when something has died but and for other people to grasp their mind of grieving for something that has never came to be but for you it's very very real and when you wrote about you know envisioning the children that you would have had and how that is very visceral for you very visceral to you and your husband you envisioned a lot of it and there's so many I feel like this and and infertility and the grief on infertility is very much a silenced grief and I mean miscarriage and baby loss I feel it's that in itself is already a very quite silenced community and they feel they may not have a voice and I think it has gotten better in a lot more recent years um but something the infertility grief is just a completely different scale obviously of why you are writing this book but there was something you wrote in the next tract when you were talking about your book 
um, there was nowhere I could call. There were charities for infertility, miscarriage, stillbirth, or for parents whose children had died. I hadn't miscarried. I hadn't experienced any of these dreadful tragedies. And yet, oh God, I had lost a child. I just thinking of how isolating that experience was for you and still it potentially still is for you Kat like how once you and your partner were told look we need we're going to stop here we need to stop here and there is there is no further outcome here how did you cope what were those early few months like for the pair of you so my husband was reasonably prosaic about the whole thing and as much as you can be when and actually no prosaic is really bad because he felt awful about Mm. it but he also had the wonderful attitude and outlook that if it's just you and me that's all I need Mm. which is incredible I mean I mean I'm I mean we both basically think the other one's made a terrible mistake and will one day find out (laughs) (laughs) the imposter syndrome and all the (laughs) yeah totally but for the moment I'm very smug I love him very much and he's an absolute (laughs) legend but I didn't have that because I it wasn't sort of like, you're not enough and we must have a child mm-hmm. uh, and that must go. It was actually, I realised over the course of the years that it was, a, I, I wanted to have a child partly because I knew that he would be an amazing dad mm-hmm. and I would probably be a decent mum, partly because I've had a lot of therapy over the years and have therefore you know dealt with quite a lot of generational trauma and all that sort of stuff as well as just the the classic thing of growing up in the 80s and 90s when mental health didn't exist in inverted commas um but he was also worried about what could happen in the future so whereas I was just like right jump in with both feet let's go Mm -hmm. he was you know contemplating you know what would happen if we then had a miscarriage or if something Mm -hmm. dreadful happened to our child or potentially you know all of the things that that parents, you know, worry about, mm-hmm. but which we'd had so much to worry about before even getting to the stage of being pregnant, yeah. like all of this before. And on top of all of that, I'd, I had in my mind that probably the only way that I could convince society or perhaps to a certain extent elements of my family that I was an okay person mm. and that, you know, oh, she's a bit weird, but we'll allow it. Just by being a mother, mm. just by being, you know, by becoming a parent and, you know, giving family grandchildren or, uh, you know, nieces, nephews, or just sort of, you know, widening that sort of family yeah. tree a bit more. Um, because I, I do, you do just sort of, however, however much you try not to, you do take in all that Daily Mail bullshit yeah. about, you know, women without children are selfish, like mm-hmm. career women, blah, 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 blah. And part of that comes from the fact that, you know, when I was a little girl, when I was at my, I went, briefly went to an extremely thrusting girl's school when I was seven and eight, yeah. um, you know, we were being taught that we could do anything, that we could become anything. And actually, when I do the sums, that was barely 25 years since mm-hmm. women had to have their husband's permission Gosh. and a written signature to get a mortgage. Wow. And that was assuming that they would get married at all. Mm. You know, women were still chattel. Yeah. Like, uh, thinking back, even when I was born in 1982, women were still being treated with eye-watering levels of sexism. Yeah. That when we see all this nonsense about Hovis advert levels of nostalgia in the press and more mm. widely now, you're like, oh, you are picking and choosing with your nostalgia. Yeah, what was of our history was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, completely. So that was a, a really huge part of it because it felt like me becoming normal 
was now completely out of the out of the equation. Mm. But at the same time, and I sorry, I hasten to follow this up because I know mm. some people will understandably be mm. like, children, are, you know, they're not supposed to fix you, and of course they're not going to. And my God, I know that. But also it was just that feeling of this timeline splitting, this timeline veering off from the one in which, you know, we became parents, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. And we put all our loves and interests and everything that we'd learned and everything that we'd researched and all the therapy that we'd had and all the family that we loved, all the Mm -hmm. friends that we loved into our children and watched them grow and see the person that they'd become. But that split, just as it split every time that somebody that we knew, you know, obviously inadvertently, um, but also it's it's not ideal anyway, but any time that a, a child's name that we'd both you know, rarely yeah. managed to agree on. Yeah. Every time one of those got used, then the timeline in which we had a child with that name, that diverted off. Yeah. And and again, like you you mentioned me sort of seeing the children as well. I mean, we, my husband and I both look very similar and that we're both very tall and weirdly have the same size feet, but we also <laughs> are characteristically quite different. Yeah. So on that hand, I, I can't sort of see how we would have, you know, grown into children at all yeah. because the fascinating thing about seeing friends and families kids is you see the two parents but then you see a third person in that mm-hmm. who is absolutely indefinably the child's self yes um but yeah I'd sort of see these sort of little spirity things weirdly in sort of like Victorian nightgowns I suppose oh, really? a little bit like how Prince George was always dressed up like a 1940s ghost <laughs> child when he was a kid but yeah just them sort of floating around I suppose, waiting to go to their, their body or whatever. Yeah. I mean, just in my imagination, not, I'm not being haunted by the ghosts. No, no. My, uh, you know, future non-existent kids. But, <laughs> but yeah, you do have that. And, and that's, I mean, that was just eye-wateringly, like, bone-breakingly sad. Mm. Um, I mean, there's no words for it, no. are there? You just, particularly because when we had that final call, that was during lockdown, mm-hmm. And um, and that was good in a way because I couldn't see anybody, but it was bad in a way because you couldn't I couldn't see anybody. Minimally, yeah. But I'd already, yeah, but I'd already established, I think, the first time around after our IVF cycles were, that I didn't know how to be around people with my grief. Mm-hmm. Like the way that I told people about it was by leaving every single WhatsApp group that I was in and then tweeting that this had happened. Yeah. And yes, I'm, I'm very online, probably a little bit less so than I was because that Elon Musk bullshit is uh. just too much for me. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't think I trusted that anybody could cope with this level of feeling from me, particularly. Mm, yeah. And, and yeah. for you, it felt really destructive. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, if you, if you and yourself have no idea, if you're looking ahead and thinking, I have no idea how we're going to cope with this or how I'm going to cope with this, how can I expect that of or not expect that, or yet yeah, look at anybody and think, how on earth would they be able to hold me in my grief as well? Totally. Yeah, that was it. Because it's, it's not sort of neat. Mm. It's not like I can give somebody, like, I'm holding a, a large cup of tea in my hand at the moment. Mm. It's not like I can go, here you are, can you just hold this for a minute? It's, um, I really loved the X-Men comics growing up, and I still do, and I always think of Jean Grey when she becomes Dark Phoenix and essentially an ultimate and completely chaotic power being just sort of exuding completely unwieldy power of it yeah. that is how it felt yeah. 
because I was like, I don't know how to express this. I don't know what to do. And I don't know when it's going to become neat and polite. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of need to lock myself away almost to protect everybody else. And, you know, really to protect myself from the possibility of if I did ask people who weren't my husband or my cats to help me deal with it that they might go sorry mate it's a bit much yeah and that's Got the part pandemic stuff going on exactly and yeah. you know even in grief when the very much remind me of myself of for so many for so many years I didn't ask for help and then when I finally went I needed to find help and I couldn't and the the harder part for me was sometimes actually not getting the, those words off my mouth it was the fear of the rejection of help of I've built enough courage and just a power within myself to say because there is power in saying that and saying, yeah, I need help. And, but to be met with someone to go, actually, don't know what to do about that or, you know, no room here. And you're just like, are you fucking joking me? Like, I've really, I've really swallowed my pride. For me, it was definitely, it felt like a pride thing almost, but then actually more looking deep down, it was more of a fear of someone saying, sorry, you are too complex or your grief is bigger than life. And I don't know what to do with it. And even somebody who said, did say that, like, look, this is very complex, but let me try and help you find somewhere that can. Mm. That's still something. That is gorgeous. And I mean, what an amazing and compassionate response. In fact, I'm amazed by some of the responses that I got to tweeting about it, whether people who somehow managed to find my you know, address and send mm. me lovely things mm. or just send me a note or just somehow write something in language that I didn't even know mm. I needed to read. Because I think... Something that we forget is that we as a society, and particularly in, oh my God, particularly in Britain, like the stiff upper lip culture mm. is still so real. Mm. Nobody teaches us how to be empathetic in this way. And given that, you know, without getting on a soapbox too much, but given the lack of investment, mm. not just in mental health services, but in, you know, mental conditions, mm -hmm. the fact that all, all that that sort of amounts to is going, you know, you know, gotta, you've got to ask for help, you know, yeah. don't, don't be alone, mm -hmm. reach out to somebody. And it's like, well, who? Yeah. Because Tell I can't who. get a professional. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, God bless her. But like my next door neighbour, I mean, she's a vet, so she's brilliant with the animal stuff, but I wouldn't know Humans, what to say. No. Or, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, you know, we are not, we are not taught how to hold space no. for people in that way. Because for years, well, for centuries, really, we just haven't. Mm -hmm. Everybody's just kept it buttoned up and developed an alcohol problem. Yeah. Like the next well-adjusted yeah, yeah, human yeah. being. And what's or, so sad, yeah. yeah, what's so sad is that when we actually go, we go back centuries and we look at different cultures, when it comes to things like with grief and support, it's all in the community. This sort yeah. of, you know, absolutely, I agree, one-to-one -one has its place and professional support does. But when that, when that takes away from community support and it turns out that looking to your community, your inner circle is the weirder thing to do, I'm like, oh, we've gone completely wrong here. Like, we derive it by centuries and we, ha we have, you know, we, we are tribal in ways. And so we've just, it's just decimated throughout the years and just completely gone. And now... I think especially with during COVID, when our communities, we weren't allowed to be with our communities, we realised actually how subconsciously we did rely on them. Even if we weren't overt people to say, I need to pull on my village and I need to do this. When we didn't have that, we were like, mm. oh, 
Wow. And so now kind of coming back out of it, people are a COVID tangent here, but um, yeah, people are like, oh, community, this feels too much because we've been so used to just internalizing and keeping calm and carrying the fuck on when we're not wily inclined to just internalize all this pain and all this experience and that when you share your experience and people listen you're and then they go on to tell their story like that's just amazing stuff it's not meant to be all kept in and just shared in, in confined spaces it has its place but we are by we need villages we need our villages yep and we need them in real life mm-hmm. as well because i mean i say that like i left all my whatsapp groups i just couldn't deal with online conversations mm-hmm. I needed like go deep or go home. And again, you know, I, I, that's that's fine. Not everybody wants to or can deal mm-hmm. with a sort of gibbering mm-hmm. maniac who's just like, oh. <laughs> but that's also why, and on the other hand, it was very helpful for me to send a tweet about it yeah. because then pretty much everybody that I knew, not necessarily on Twitter, but this sort of stuff always filters through. Okay. It filtered through to the job that I was at at the time. Um, and actually, funny, not fun enough, but very sadly enough to people where I was working who were going through very similar mm. experiences, but either weren't as wacko as I was or just weren't able to sort of talk about it at all. To find the words. In, yeah. In re- yeah, exactly. In the recovery community, there is that saying um, that the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And that's the thing is that... <sighs> you know, when we are isolated from our feelings, from ourselves, from, from truth, to be honest, from facing up to something being really bloody difficult, sitting with that discomfort, like being in a room or just being with people in real life, not just, you know, on the end of WhatsApp, on the end of Twitter, on the end of Instagram, as cool as that is, Mm. we need that, we need that real stuff. It's like the way that, you know, just looking out of a window isn't going to help your circadian rhythms. You need to be outside, even though the day is cloudy and disgusting. It's still going to do more for you. We need real people. But for the times when, for whatever reason, we can't let ourselves near real people, Mm. possibly for the reasons that I had, you know, that I'm just worried that I'm just going to explode and leave a horrible mess everywhere and it'll just be really bad. (laughs) Um, Then actually everything online to a certain extent is really helpful Mm. as long as you sort of are very specific about what you're looking for Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to go back because we touched on it and I feel like we're just yeah we're we're on the totally same wavelength here and as I was writing these questions out it was it's a question that I don't know if it's something that you've I feel like because you touched on it may have may have already but of talking about how society and how us as women and just for centuries we have been just depicted as just being our only purpose is to bear children and to and feed our husbands and keep it going um but yeah in a world it's yeah i loathe it and it does just feel like a woman's worth and our sole purpose in life is it's still massively heavily dependent on whether whether or not they can bear a child have or do you ever still feel that weight and that noise from the world and like how have you navigated that and supported yourself through that i mean it's a very it's a very real thing i was just leafing through the printout of the book hurrah um uh, to find emma deval's essay um which is definitely an essay um a historical perspective on women without children and it's just this thing like the inferior status of non-mothers uh, compared to mothers is found in literary works across the globe mm. from all 
from all times, from yeah. all periods. Um, she's she's quoted a third century Chinese poet um, whose name I'm about to massacre. Real apologies to all Chinese speakers here. Sao Qi. Um, describing a childless woman as a star who loses its shine and dies in the darkness. Oh my God. I mean, oh God. Yeah. With child, she is the moon that sails the skies. Childless, she's like a falling star. Skies and moon each wax and wane. A falling star dies without a glimmer, Amber. God. No glimmers for us. <laughs> I know. It's but, harrowing. And I, I, I understand. It's harrowing. I, I mean, I understand it on one level because, you know, reproduction is a magic that, mm. that only people assigned female at birth actually have, mm. and certainly through the, through the centuries. And Emma, further through her Instagram accounts, like surfaces people who became nuns, basically, mm. to avoid not, not the prospect of becoming parents, but the very real prospect of dying in childbirth, which for centuries was the number one way that women, women died. died. Exactly. I mean, great. Yeah. My purpose on life is, in life is to potentially die before I'm 20, giving birth to somebody else. Yeah. Great. That's mm. really fun. Um, there's a, a very scientific sounding term, which sounds, I need there to be a, like a, I don't know, a more beautiful term mm. for it, but there probably is one. It's called pronatalism. Okay. And it is something that affects all, all women particularly, um, whether, it, whether it, they're parents or they don't have children or whatever, because it basically just means being very pro-birth, okay. like just the fact of birth. But what is really key here is that it's not pro-woman, it's not pro-parent, it's not pro-children, it's just get those babies born. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, for example, is really, you know, shown in the US at the moment mm -hmm. with the rolling back of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Because, you know, if all, those, if all those children are now born, okay, great, um, what are you going to do to support the parents? Yeah. What are you going to do to support mm -hmm. those children? How are those children going to have... How are you going to ensure that they have good schooling, somewhere good to live, somewhere to live full exactly. stop? Food like, in their belly, yeah. It's, it's interesting, yeah. And like the term that I'm hearing more to describe being homeless is actually being houseless yes. because you can have a home. Well, you, can, you can technically have somewhere to stay, mm -hmm. but that might be a shelter. It might be a hotel, a and b That's not like an actual home. Mm. That is just a factual place to be, mm. whereas... You know, lots and lots of people are houseless. That's mm -hmm. not to say, oh, you know, go and get two up, two down or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just having somewhere decent to mm -hmm. live, that is yours. And that's the pronatalism thing. And that's also something that we see a lot in the news around parents is uh, there's just absolutely no thought to supporting parents in raising children. Like we're seeing that throughout you know, the last 10, 20 years yeah. with like the closure of organisations like Sure Start, mm -hmm. like community centres closing down, youth groups, yeah. just any kind of, of place for for children to be, for parents to get some respite, mm. to get to some, some support, to have that village, if you like. It's just like, no, no, just pop out just those kids and yeah. uh, we won't think of them again. No. Yeah, exactly. We won't think of them again until they're suddenly 18 and potentially we want to arrest some of them for Mr Beaners yeah. or... Or, or just some something else that's just like mm. they're just they're future statistics yeah. they're not thinking about lives and they're not thinking about the lives of the parents mm. either um and social media is brilliant uh in many ways for democratizing people getting their stories out there mm. but one of the horrific ways that this is showing is with um this young chap um who's basically going around uh dealing or shining a light on all of these council properties yes, which are absolutely talking brimming about. with yeah. mould mm. and pests and everything and it's and it's again you know 
Who would want to raise a child in those conditions? Who would want to be a person full stop mm-hmm. living in those conditions? And yet who would want to live under a council, under a government that just thinks, you know what, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But then, you know, women do push them out, if you like. And that's not necessarily to say that the father's going to hang around. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's nothing necessarily for them to sort of be like, oh, God, I've had a kid now. I should probably raise it. It's just yeah. like, oh, no, that's done. Right. Bye bye. But then, you know, who gets blamed for that? The woman does. Single mother is Always. such a disgustingly loaded term. Mm-hmm. And and it's just, and also once we break that down still further, if you're a single mother and you are black, mm-hmm. then that is just a yeah. whole nother level of prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all of these things, and and that's basically the sort of structure that we're in. And the way, in fact, the only way that I find not to just be like bloody hell, this is disgusting, and then just go and live under a table yeah. for the rest of my life, is um, is to read more about it, listen to people talking about it far more eloquently and knowledgeably than I can, because I'm just, you know, a pick and mix of of what I'm picking up. But that also really helps because it, it sort of means that I go, you know, this sadness, these issues that I've had, and also the intersections of how that shows up for me as, you know, a woman who's also just recently gone through an ADHD diagnosis and is now living with the aftermath of what that means... Mm. And I had a hip replacement last year as well. That wasn't great. Yeah. I lost loads of my coping strategies because I physically wasn't able to do mm-hmm. them. And because I'd given up drinking alcohol shortly after all the IVF stuff, which I'm thrilled with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, alcohol is a coping strategy for a lot is. of people. Yeah. And it certainly was for me. So then not having that just meant, oh, Christ, what do I do now? There's a limit to the number of baths that somebody can have. <laughs> Um, so all of that sort of stuff shows up in that way, but everybody's going through their own experience, whether it is of infertility, Mm. of losing a child, losing a baby, you know, divorce, relationship breakdown, all these different kinds of grief, Mm. but they're not just going through that. They're going through life in in this absolute prism Mm. made up of all of their life's experiences. And, you know, that was something that I wanted to try and capture of, uh, capture a little bit of in the book. In grief, I do believe that it takes a village. Grief and death is something we will all experience, which is probably why you're listening to this pod. I'm Amber, the host of the Grief Gang podcast, and the voice that you are probably already hearing while tuning into this episode. I won't take up too much of your time and I'll let you get right back to the episode, but I wanted to take this moment to tell you, you lovely listener, about the Grief Gang mentoring. Yep, you heard that right. I've been doing Grief Gang for quite some time now and the part I love most about this work is getting to connect and meet people just like you to be able to support and guide you through this at times messy, messy grief journey. You don't have to go through grief alone. In fact, I don't think we should. You can inquire with me today for one-to-one mentoring or be part of the amazing group circles I'll be holding regularly every month. If you're interested, visit the show notes of this episode to register today and I'll get back to you very soon. Yeah, I mean, you said there, you said you weren't talking eloquently about it, but that's just everything you've just said there and sort of piecing that whole of 
part of how yeah we're just inclined to just birth out babies but yeah the whole actual journey of it and how societally that the society doesn't actually care for these children and just it's, it's a bit handmaid's tale like yeah it's it's grim and i really see that actually through through the attitudes of some older people possibly because you know they're just being paid to be contrarian <laughs> but in the way that they speak about like girls and women particularly i never really see these pieces about men surprisingly mm-hmm. enough but you know oh no childless women under 30 and it's like well how do you know that they're childless have you asked them the all power. of them because otherwise you're just like you're talking about women that just don't have kids that's it they might be child free they might be childless they might you know just not have got around to it yet because yeah. amazingly enough it's not a very secure environment for bringing children into the world and to be honest people making those decisions are weighing up how they can raise a kid in probably a very mm. responsible way um so yeah it, i mean it's thank god it's not as you know gone all the way towards handmaid's tale but actually we are seeing elements of that in terms of i can't remember what they were called what atwood called in the book but like gender gender criminals or something like that and i mean the whole attitude between a a certain element of the pathway from like health and beauty journalist and fashion journalist Mm. to like trans community Mm. frothing at the mouth hatred is just absolutely wild and it's like i know why it is it's it's because you are feeling completely powerless Mm. about your ability to actually do anything that impacts the real things affecting yeah. women because how much easier is it just to get you know start lamping on trans women but um but yeah, there's this tiny 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 element of the population but it's so much easier to stamp on yeah. them rather than looking at policemen exactly. or headmasters mm-hmm. or literally anybody in a position of power oh, yeah. who really are you know ex- you know it's very difficult to dismantle power yeah of any kind so yeah it's much easier just to make your bucks slagging off the trans community and going oh women's rights and it's like i don't see you doing anything Mm -hmm. for women's rights nothing at all you want to keep us in a box you know i've wasted yeah exactly i've wasted five ten minutes of my life reading this absolute drivel what have you got to say about the police yeah oh nothing amazing no no it is to touch when we just talking about how um how yeah media and everything just portrays women who may choose not to have children i'm interested here kind of like and i i could maybe imagine really what your response may be but and it is it must be really difficult oh i'm wondering i'm, I'm saying i'm trying to imagine maybe if i was in the position of of somebody who who can't have children and is maybe seeing more of um and there is more there's more statistics say that women and family partners are choosing not to have children as we said all those factors that we've just relayed there of sometimes the environment you're in is not where you want to raise a child and so you may choose to not have a child or maybe it's just something you may have never wanted as someone as someone who has wanted and still wants to have children how do you find navigating that or like reading all that kind of discord online like yeah what's your thoughts of that I, I can imagine that you you know everyone is free mm. to live their life but as somebody who has been told that they can't and to see somebody making an active choice how do you cope with that I think the interesting thing is is that it almost runs parallel to the conversations that we're having around gender mm-hmm. and that these feelings are absolutely not binary they're not set in stone um, growing up, I knew that I wanted to have a family, partly because that was just what everybody in my family did. Mm-hmm. Um, but underneath, I also had this huge ambivalence about would I be a good parent? Would I enjoy being a parent? 
you know, would I find it limiting in a way? Um, would I be limiting my child by not being thrilled at sort of devoting every waking moment mm-hmm. to, you know, looking after them? Um, I mean, I have I have a dog and two cats, which are categorically not the same. But actually, I'm completely besotted by all of yeah. them and their psychopathic madness. So I do I do get that, you know, when you have your own your own kid then that is completely different Mm. but that also doesn't get rid of all of the different elements that make it there Mm. and actually one of the essays in the book is in fact a few essays are about your your changing your mind because I think that is also a huge element Mm -hmm. of it I think the stereotype of the infertile woman is somebody standing on a I don't know rock somewhere hands clasped staring out to sea looking sad going I will never stop I will Mm. not stop until I have a child which is terrifying and really bad terminator Mm -hmm. vibes and bad for your mental health and just life in general um and actually my husband and I decided not to pursue other animals not other animals Uh, definitely my husband's definitely (laughs) decided not to pursue other animals animals. but um (laughs) other exactly um but not to pursue other avenues to become parents partly because we were both absolutely shattered by what was then, you know, five five or so years, six more years of just, you know, trying to become parents mm. and, and not succeeding in that way. But also just in order to pursue other ways of becoming a parent, you need to be at top of your game, mm. you know, because also that's that thing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do this so that I reach a happy ending for myself. Mm. The, the happy ending is a myth. Yeah. The happy ending is just a pause before the next breath and life continues. Like the, the children that you have don't give a shit about the fact that they were your happy endings. Mm. They're like, well, I was, I was barely born then. Yeah. And I can't, certainly can't remember it. And anyway, can you, can you come and help me? Because he's, he's not my Lego over yeah. and I'm just going to cry absolutely disconsolately <laughs> for the next three hours because this is so unjust and awful. Like they don't care about mm. your problems and rightly so they are their own people exactly. in their own right. And, um, and we just didn't feel that, that we were able to sort of go down that route and pursue it because it might've just been a point where all of the faculties that we had to be good parents were just winnowed down and down and down to a point mm. that, you know, we, we had a kid through, whatever means and then we were just knackered and then we suddenly had to start the equivalent of like 18 years of marathons minimum back to back Mm. I've run one marathon very slowly and that was tough enough (laughs) um but also in the book I've got essays from people who have changed their minds or may change their minds in the future Mm -hmm. um either from very firmly not wanting to have children for various reasons um or really wanting children and going to quite some lengths to try and make that happen and then going, actually, do you know what? My life as it is now, mm. I'm good. Yeah. I'm enough. This is enough. Um, and that's not to mean that you just sort of live in your sort of gingerbread cottage in the middle of the woods trying to poison all of the kids that go past <laughs> and hissing at them. I mean, I've, I'm surrounded by an absolute army of nieces and nephews yeah. and god kids and other friends kids and that sort of thing kids on the street not sorry not kids on the street that's that's just like that's very gingerbread cottage again but like you know my neighbors have have got kids and that sort of thing and they'll periodically come in and get an enormous snack whilst i'm playing boggle with their mum or something (laughs) like that and and that's good that's good for me because when i when i think about like my experience growing up like obviously i got I got a lot of input and a lot of help and support from my parents. In fact, God, part of the reason that I'm living in a house 
that would have been enough to raise children is because mm. my pet I was a very lucky beneficiary of the bank of mum and dad yeah. um but when I think of the other people that I really really value how they essentially raised me in part even though I didn't necessarily see them every day every week every month hopefully at least every year but not all of them have got kids um not all of them are married mm-hmm. not all of them are in like traditional relationships yeah. or whatever and I'm so grateful for those people. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jodie Day always puts it as she wants to be a good ancestor, wow. um, which I know is a very common term in lots of different areas. And I think that's it. You can be a good ancestor to people without being genetically related to them yeah. or, you know, or being their parent in, in whatever sense you have come to that, whether it's through, you know, donor conception, adoption, mm. fostering, all of those sorts of different ways. But you can be just... I think also just being a good person to yourself as well as to other people is really important. And I mean, it's taken me a bloody long time and I'm so grateful for the patience, the forbearance and the grace of my friends and relatives who have kids to even like be able to hang out for long periods of time or any periods of time, partly because that intersection of giving up alcohol Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the IVF and everything like that, that was a really prickly intersection. Mm-hmm. Like alcohol is a very good emotions blunter. Yeah. And then there I was with, you know, all of my emotions all the time. You were raw and dogging the emotions. I'm just really grateful. <laughs> oh God, in just, the, in just the worst way. Also, because to make up for the alcohol, I started drinking coffee like a maniac. I always, I already drank coffee like a maniac and that just went even mm. more so because I was like, must have stimulation. <laughs> But then when I started on literal stimulants for my for ADHD, I didn't stop drinking the coffee. And it's only been, God, like three weeks now that I've actually genuinely like put the coffee down and gone, the time has come. I'm ready. That's good. <laughs> and that I really regard as like a like a fairly hilarious, but like a really important part of this journey mm-hmm. to becoming, you know, not not that an all-powerful genie or something, but not that sort of evolution. It's not like my final Pokemon form, but it's just the next level of sort of healing of, yeah. of living, really. Like when people talk about healing, they are just talking about living. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going from that feeling of feeling like you're walking around like somebody whose skin has just been removed oh, so and you cool. are yeah. just in pain and sensitivity to literally everything mm-hmm. to then going okay i've built some i built i built my skin back up i built my protection back up but also i've dropped my guard a bit and i'm willing to be vulnerable to let people in and to know that i can they can let me in mm. and this can be a reciprocal thing and that i'm not going to be for me so self-involved that i just think that everything is about me mm. Um, not in terms of, oh, my grief is so big, but I mean in terms of I'm a disgusting, defective, horrible Mm. person and I must hide this from people at all costs. You know, a big part of, of, you know, healing for me has been acceptance work. And I've been speaking to my therapist going like, what do you you mean acceptance? Of course I accept. And she's like, you don't, you know, it's radical acceptance. It's Mm. going, I don't need to be a hundred meter Olympic sprinter to have value as a person, Mm -hmm. as this person, you know, 
not every day is going to be, oh my God, I've hit the headlines with this latest piece or, oh, I've done this really sexy event or, oh, somebody sent me something free from Instagram for some random reason or whatever. You know, every day is not going to be something to shout about because when you think about shouting about something, it's how will this be perceived by other people? Whereas actually it's the, it, it really is, it's those inner shouts. That's a terrible term. No, but, but it's it those things where you are just going, yeah, all right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Lovely. That's all right. And, <laughs> and a bit, yeah, exactly. And a, a big thing with the coffee, and I'll stop monologuing in a minute, but it was just, I had to go and do um, uh, a, a, meet, a recovery meeting yesterday and I was going to go and give a little talk. And um, I completely got the times wrong. And so I sort of rolled out of bed where I'd been having a lovely nap with the paper. But I realised that actually I wasn't panicking about it or going, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm so awful. Because yes. I was like, no, if, you know, if you drive, you will get there on time. And you might not have like a load of makeup on or mm-hmm. anything, but you, you look respectable. Mm-hmm. You look like a decent person. You have washed recently. <laughs> you did good. wash yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also I realised that for like the hour previously, my head had been completely empty. Wow. Like, I don't mean as in thinking of nothing. I just mm. mean that that washing machine brain that mm. I'm so used to from, from coffee, anxiety, ADHD, whatever, I was just sitting there reading the paper. Yeah. That's epic. Yeah. That is completely epic. And that is such a, a huge part of all of this for me and for for grief, because my grief was so tinged mm. as well as with sadness and loss and the timelines and all of that. It was tinged with epic colours of shame. Mm-hmm. And just my head calming down, it just shows that, you know, that's probably that's still there. I still find it deeply weird when I see photographs of myself because I genuinely I don't recognise myself really mm-hmm. as a person in the world. I, I do that. still sort of think of myself as like an avatar in a meat suit. <laughs> yeah. um, but internally, it's getting better. Yeah. In, and I'm releasing, my, I'm releasing my hold on the things that I've relied on, for better or for worse, to drag me through life. Yeah, and that how you've defined yourself. You're letting go four, of five, your 10, old... Four, five, years. Yeah, yeah, the old ways of how you defined yourself. You're relinquishing that. And that does sound like radical acceptance. We'll get there. Bloody hell, radical acceptance is a very expensive process. <laughs> God. It's got a hefty just, price tag. Part of the reason that I haven't... <laughs> I know, part of the reason I just haven't had any hobbies for the last few years is because it's all been going on bloody medication and therapy. Um... But, you know, that is good and those should probably be hobbies, so that's fine. Those are good hobbies but, um, to have. I'm, yeah. But I think it's also very important that we recognise that we're just talking about where we are now exactly. today and that things are going to look different next year, mm-hmm. next decade. But I, I do know that for ages all I could see was today, the past and what I hoped the future would be. Mm-hmm. And I never really anticipated a life for myself. Mm-hmm just there would be things that I would hopefully do and achieve Mm. whereas now it's like oh I see I can see I am capable of seeing the world in a in a calmer slower way and that goes for you know appreciating that being a parent is not one thing or the other Mm -hmm. and it's certainly not the answer to everybody's prayers and wishes as much as it is, mm-hmm. and as much as there are wonderful, great and gorgeous things about it. Um, and I, you know, I will always, not necessarily envy, but I will always look very wistfully, not all the time, by the way, but a lot at, 
at friends and family and their kids because that is an incredible relationship mm. and it's you know it's it's one that I'm not going to have mm. unless I don't know I adopt a random 30 year old in sort of 40 years time mm. or something but you know I'm very grateful that I get to experience love and friendship mm-hmm. and family on whatever level and also that I'm doing the fucking work to make sure that you know, I can't control what happens, but I can control my re- my reaction to it. Yeah. But I'm only able to really do that now that I'm not having a hip replacement or a horrendous infection afterwards. Yeah. That I'm not, you know, going through IVF or the grief of never becoming a parent, yeah. or the grief of an IVF uh, of an ADHD diagnosis, mm-hmm. or all the difficulties that you know giving up an addictive behaviour shows up on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Like now, I've sort of I'm clattering through all of that. I can start getting to actually accepting and dealing with, you know, life on life's terms. Wow. That's going to sit with me. I'd love to round off here. And I'm just, I mean, I'm beaming. You just, I adore talking with you and I can't wait to read your book or your book, sir, when they come out. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell the listener, um, when and how we can get our hands on your book and just a little synopsis and what they can look forward to oh yes so no one talks about this stuff is I like to describe it as a support group in a book it's for almost parents this might be parents it might be single people uh, childless people child-free people across the the gender the sexuality the you know we've got men and women writing in it as well about all sort of different aspects of Uh, basically, you know, no one talks about this stuff. Um, I think it's also really important to say that there is a topic index as well for anything that people might find really heavy to come across because, you know, as we've sort of discussed in this chat, it's impossible to break someone's experience down to Mm -hmm. one label or, you know, this one's about miscarriage. Yeah, but it's also about loads of other stuff. Mm -hmm. This one's about abortion. Yes, and the rest. So... Rather than go, this essay is about blah, blah, blah. If there is something that you just really want to avoid and that is too much for you to deal with right now, completely understand that. And there is an index of like like the heavy yes. topics sort of in the back so that you can just, you know, mm-hmm. just check and make a note of that. Um, but everybody in it writes so beautifully. There are real moments of surprise, of humour, because, you know, you cannot go through tragedy without that black, dark mm-hmm. gallows humour. My God. Um, and again, it's that experience strength and hope to borrow that term from recovery you know how the hell people have got through these difficult things what it was like at the time and where they're at now and how they're how they're living and and also just honoring those children those lives that aren't here which I think is a really big part of it um so that comes out in March 2024 um you can at the time of recording you can still pledge and get your name in the book uh, if you go to unbound.com and search cat brown or no one talks about this stuff otherwise from autumn winter onwards it will be available to pre-order in all the usual places where you like to get your books um and then my other book is <laughs> called it's not a bloody trend uh it's a support group or a support guide really for adults who think they might have adhd or pursuing diagnosis or have been diagnosed um, and that is out in February 2024, because if you want something done, ask somebody with ADHD and they'll hyperfocus on it and get it done really quickly. <laughs> and that is out from Robinson, which is an imprint of Little Brown, and that is available to pre-order everywhere. Um, and that, again, is 
it's a mix of my experience. I've interviewed loads of people with ADHD and all sorts of over overmapping and overlapping intersections and comorbidities. And I've also interviewed a load of experts, like genuine experts who've worked in the field of ADHD for a very long time to, you know, get the truth of all the stuff that sort of does the rounds, either in really irresponsible newspaper pieces yeah. or on TikTok or Instagram. Um, and just so that, you know, for this moment in time, there is something that sort of borders the scientific and the anecdotal. Um, so that, again, there's something that you can sort of hold on to and know that it's filled with voices and good, helpful suggestions of, you know, just how to, how to go through this next bit. Cause you know, discovering that there is something different about you can be a really like it could be a real high. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, you're like, oh God, nothing's changed. But now I'm just very aware of everything <laughs> yeah. that I'm doing, which could be in. an absolute nightmare. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and so cheat sheets and all that sort of stuff. So, and then after that, um, I will hopefully just never write a book Rest. again. You need to, honestly, I've just felt exhausted hearing all of that. I've like, Jesus, Kat, you've been working so hard and just. I'm so appreciative of your work and I cannot re- wait to read both books. I'm going to read them back to back. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a pop quiz after oh, that. No, yeah. no, I'll oh, be God, very yeah. grateful yeah. if you bought it. You're very welcome just to keep them as like, you know, like rocks or sort of paperweights <laughs> or something just forever. But no, right back at you, Amber. I just, I, I'm so thrilled that everybody listening to this podcast, that they get to check in with you so regularly and the work that you do solo and with Poppy as well is just epic. And I always just really appreciate the way that you show up online. Um, I think for, for older people like me, like I'm 40 at the moment of recording, um, <laughs> you, you just really give us permission to sort of open that oyster shell that a little bit more. Because mm. uh, we're sort of like millennials sort of straddle that thing, that bit thing between stiff upper lip and shit loads of therapy. Yeah. And we haven't quite mastered that yet. So just, I really appreciate your work and you are just a total ledge. Oh, love you. I love you, Kat. And I just thank you so, so much for being a guest here today on The Grief Gang. Thank you for having me and thank you everybody for listening and lots of love to you all. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. I appreciate more than you'll ever know your support of the show. And I hope this episode has supported you in one way or another. Spread the good word about the Grief Gang podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Subscribe to the show on your chosen listening platform so you're first to know when a new episode drops. Visit the show notes below to follow the Grief Gang on all social platforms and pay our website a visit to find further resources and ways to get in contact and work with me. Look after yourself and know that you are never alone. I'll see you soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 